Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. Let's go in our Bibles this morning. We're going to go to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, and we'll be in verses 13 through 18. The question that I have for you is, what is the DNA of a healthy church? What is the DNA of a healthy church? We're in this series, our five distinctives right now. What makes a church thrive? What makes a church healthy? What makes a church an environment of encouragement, of comfort, and Christ-likeness? This is the question for us this morning, and this is the question for us for all time. We'll never move away from, Lord, help us to be a healthy, thriving, Christ-centered church. So the way that we flesh this out, and the reason why we revisit this from time to time is so that we do not forget. We looked at this a few weeks ago. All of these sermons are online. At the heart of this ministry is Christ-centered preaching. That's where we begin, Christ-centered preaching, proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology. We were encouraged greatly last week, weren't we, with Corey being here, opening the word. And as people, he, he and I were talking as we were on the way back to the airport, and he said, man, people just kept coming up to me and and they were just saying how, how they love to hear the preaching of the word and, and they get the preaching of the word. And, and I said, you know, that, that means that what you did is you fit within what we do. You, you preach not ourselves as the heroes, but Christ is the substance and the source and the supremacy of our message. Number two, we looked at passionate worship the weekend before Corey was here, that we aim to lift high the name of Jesus Christ in spirit and in truth. Today, we're gonna look at fervent prayer. It's our third distinctive. Believing in the power of God, we are devoted to praying boldly and without ceasing. Jesus invited and he instructed his disciples about the priority of prayer, the priority of abiding in Christ. He said this in John 15. You understand the way that God has orchestrated all things is that we are absolutely impotent without his help. <laughs> did, you, did we not get that from the sermon last Sunday? That David... How in the world? Did you find yourself thinking of that this week? How did Saul actually come to the plan? Okay, I'm going to give the kingdom into your hand, little man. And he walked out and all the palace said, there he is. There's the guy. Are you kidding me? Our leader has lost his mind. God is on his throne. This is the way the Lord is in just orchestrated everything. Without Christ, we are, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, without hope and without God in the world. So Jesus said to his disciples in John 15 in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And read this with me. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Not a showing off my bilingual, you know, all my linguistic skills here. Nothing, zilch. You can't do anything. So who actually likes to hear the words? You can't do that. Remember that from last Sunday? Not you. Anybody but you. You can't do this, David. Who enjoys hearing you can't do that? Tell your kid that. Oh, you can't do that. No, you're not going to be able to do that. And what are they? Oh, watch me. I will try. I will put a stool on top of the table, on top of the dog, and I'm going to get it done. Ah, mommy. This is what Jesus is saying. You can't do this without me. There's the key. In the power of Christ, we can. And Paul learned this lesson. He learned this in Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
That's not a verse taken out of context. Paul was saying, I can be content wherever I am. The Lord will make me to abound, and it's impossible to do on my own. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Mary Slessor was a missionary to West Africa. I encourage you to read her biography. She said this, she said, praying is harder work than doing. But the dynamic lies that way to advance the kingdom, the way of prayer, abiding in Christ. We're always reminded that prayer is the key in our lives to every victory, every failure. It comes down to praying. And every time that we come to the subject of prayer, loved ones, I feel like I'm swimming in the deep end again, just like we're back in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, there we find great company with the disciples because when they stumbled upon Jesus praying, what did they say in Luke 11, 1? Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Lord, can you let us in on what you're doing there? Can you imagine just coming into the presence of Jesus, talking with his, fire, with his Father in heaven? Somehow I don't think it was, God, I thank thee, that, like some high, it, no, if, if everything changes, you know, the voice changes, the demeanor changes when we go into prayer, it's like, what is going on there? I've known some guys like that, you know, they're preachers and they have a normal voice and they get behind the pulpit, brother, and it changes. Like, you know, and, and I've had some pastor friends and we're like, what's going on there? Like, you know, is that how he talks to us? What, good evening, sister, you know, like, is that how he talks to people? What is going on there? Like, how come there's this radically different person when it's like, zip, now I'm, do you think Jesus turned in, you know? And the disciples were used to hearing the Pharisees pray and they were used to their own prayers and trailing off or falling asleep or losing thought, you know, track, and now we're thinking about the grocery list. Where I started out praying. How did I get here? Change the oil, mow the yard. Wait a second. I was praying. And they say to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. Show us what you're doing. And in Luke, it moves into the teaching of the disciples' prayer. We studied that in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what H.B. Charles says in a great book I recommend to you. It Happens After Prayer is the title, H.B. Charles. He says, I believe the wonder-working disciples made this request because prayer is one of the most difficult things to learn as a follower of Christ. Most difficult. Harder than preaching, it is. Harder than doing miracles. I've not done those. It's one of the hardest lessons to learn because it's one of the most important things to learn in your Christian life and in my Christian life. It's learning to abide in the presence of the Lord. It's learning to get quiet, to get still, to be still and know that I am God. And it's the hardest thing to do when we have these devices and we have these and we have everything going on. To turn it all off and get alone with God it's like moving mountains. Now listen, this morning, beloved, Jesus grew up in a blended family. He had brothers. He had sisters. And they didn't have the same father. They had the same mother. But Jesus had brothers and sisters. Imagine growing up in that house. You know, James, Jesus never backtalked me like you're doing you know, James, Jesus always cleans his room and says, how can I help you? You know, James, um, Jesus always has the right response in situations. James, I know! It's his half-brother. They share the same mother, but they don't share the same father. Jesus was adopted by Joseph, Raised him as his own. Aren't you the carpenter's son? Well, yeah, that's what you know about me. Oh, yeah, we know about you. 
James didn't believe. He wasn't immediately a follower of his brother, Jesus. John 7, his brothers are doing what brothers do, kind of like David's brothers were doing to him. Yeah, if you're really somebody special, Jesus, why don't you go up on in the public limelight in Jerusalem and just, you know, say, I'm here now. You can read the response that Jesus has for them, and you can understand there's a little sibling rivalry happening there. My time isn't now, but your time can be any day, any moment. They didn't believe, James didn't believe until his brother, his half-brother sharing the same mother, came out of the grave and stepped on the enemy's neck, death, that we talked about last Sunday, and then James came to faith and said, there's something radically, now I know what it is about my brother. He is Messiah. He is God in flesh. And when he writes this letter, think about this. How did he go from being an antagonist, a non-believer, to a follower, and a book bears his name in the New Testament? How did Saul say, all right, Dave, go ahead, get him? God's sovereign, omnipotent hand is guiding over. Now, what Corey didn't tell you last week is his salvation testimony. I met Corey in Illinois one evening before senior finals happened. He came with a friend. His friend's name is Adam brought him to the gym. I was playing basketball. They were studying for finals in the classroom above the gym. They started talking about spiritual things. Adam opened the door. Hey, Pastor Brian, come up here. My friend's got some questions. So sweaty me goes upstairs. And we started talking. And the end of me sharing the gospel with Corey, he said, that sounds good and everything, but I'm not going to kneel and give my life to Christ because I'm going to go make money. And I want all the toys that this world has. So I'm not going to just pray because you want me to pray. And I said, well, that's good because salvation doesn't happen that way. You can't pray pleasing somebody else, impressing somebody else, and change anything. He left. That was the only time I interacted with him the five years we lived in Illinois was that evening. He moved to Chicago. He went to work for one of the largest Dodge dealers in the Chicagoland. And next to him, a desk or two over, was a believer. And that woman shared the gospel consistently with him. And eventually his heart was open, his eyes were open, and he turned from making money to go be a janitor at Moody Bible Institute because he couldn't get in. Their admissions were full. So he got in through the back door by doing janitorial work, which then allowed him to take classes until he had a spot and he graduated from Moody. Tell me God isn't sovereign probably the least amount of impact of anybody's life in ministry that I've had. And the Lord is like, that's okay. You were one twist in the light bulb. I've got this. I'm in control. Do you trust me? Can we let that, and I need to let that remind me of when you share the gospel and people turn you down and say, not for you, not today. It's not the end as long as they are living and breathing and moving. And God knows what he's doing. James is one of those guys. He's a no-hoper. Maybe you feel like you're that person this morning. James was religious, but James was lost. James' only hope was Jesus, and he came to know Christ, and it changed everything about him. And when he writes this letter, he's writing a letter of encouragement to people who are suffering. They're under great trial, and he can write, and he isn't writing, guessing, hoping, oh, I hope this is helpful. He knows this is your only hope. James chapter 5, verse 13 is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 
The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Father, this is your word. Remind us again this morning of the power of your word, the effectiveness of your word, the trustworthiness of your word, that your word goes forth and it will never, ever, ever return void. It's like a seed and it is planted and it will bear fruit in our confidence that is in you and in your word this morning. So Holy Spirit, meet with us. Tenderize our hearts. Open our eyes to see the truth of your word and the importance of prayer in our lives as we have access to come to the throne room of heaven and say, we need your help. We need grace and we need mercy this morning, Lord. And that's what you provide. So we thank you and we trust you. In Jesus' powerful and good name we pray, amen. All right, this morning, let's unpack this. Believing in the power of God... We're devoted to praying boldly without ceasing. So here's our resolutions. There are four. Number one, let us resolve to offer prayer when we are suffering. Let us resolve to offer prayer when we are suffering. And we have to be reminded of these. I have to be reminded of these. This is individual prayer. Now, under each of these categories, there's going to be a situation, what's going on, when is, when is the occasion for this prayer, and then James is going to say, here's what you do, here's your remedy, here's your invitation, here's your instruction, here's your exhortation, all right? That's going to happen under each of these. Is anyone among you suffering? And all God's people said, <laughs> yeah, all right? Let him pray. Let him pray. What's the situation? The situation that James unpacks here are times of suffering. The original word talks about a distress, talks about withstanding trouble, enduring hardship. Basically, this is bad times. When you go through bad times, what are you to do? Pray. Trials and testing are a part of this life. Christians are not exempt from suffering. We are not exempt from experiencing trials and hardship, and sometimes that happens when somebody comes to faith in Christ and then the floor drops out and they're like, what? what? I thought my life was supposed to get better. I, 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 I'm, I'm trusting in you, Lord, and, and I lost my job and the dog ran away, and what in the world is happening? Peter learned this. Lord, if it's you, let me come to you on the water. Come on, Petey. All right. Oh, Lord, this is amazing. The waves. Lord, hello. And Jesus, I got you. In the boat. Peter, don't take eyes off Jesus ever. Night of betrayal. Where's that piece of paper? Where did I write that on? No, I don't know him. No, I, I swear I don't know him. I swear I don't know him. Where's that piece of paper? I took my eyes off Jesus. Oh, I wish I could tell you that this sermon is going to wrap it up and then, you know, the prayer life of wise from here on out is just, you know, angels just sit in the office with me. No. I'm going to have to remind myself. We're going to have to remind each other on this. Situation, bad times. Paul acknowledged his own suffering for the sake of Christ, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. He says, remember, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, let me tell you something, Timothy. The word of God is not bound. Word of God, not chained. I'm chained. The word of God is not chained. Oh, that's great, Paul. I'm so happy you are. What a great attitude, Paul. Hey, Timothy, 
2 Timothy 4, 5. As for you, wait, how'd we get to me? Always be sober-minded, endure, endure suffering. A younger man, be sober-minded. And this is for you. Endure suffering. Don't run from suffering. Don't run from the battle. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Why, Paul? You are the man. Well, verse 6, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my being cut loose, my departure, has come. I'm headed on, and I'm handing you the baton, son. And it's going to be tough, but it's going to be worth it. Worth it all. Trials are not pointless, loved ones. They always serve a greater and a divine purpose. We often see trials as detrimental to us, but God sees trials as developmental for us. Romans 8, 28, Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for, what is it? Good. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Those who love God, they're called according to his purpose. We suffer, but we know that behind all of the suffering, God is doing something for his glory and our good. So we trust him. So Augustine or Augustine, however you want to pronounce his name, he said this, trials serve to prove and to improve us. There's a purpose to trials. The Bible doesn't dismiss the pain of trials. It doesn't belittle and say, oh, that's nothing. Let me tell you what I've been through. That's a great comforter, right? Who, who can top Jesus? And Jesus doesn't do that to any of us when we go to him in prayer. Oh, lost your job? Hey, remember, I was on the cross, naked, beaten, unrecognizable. Jesus doesn't do that. It's true, but he's merciful and he's a good listener and he doesn't one-up us because he just that would just crush all of us. There's a purpose to our trials. They serve to prove and to improve us. And C.S. Lewis says this timeless quote. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. Oh, I'm so good. Here's your... Supply coming out of a garden. Here's your paycheck from your job. You made it to and from work safely. You know, you didn't pull all your hair out today. Uh, in, in our pleasure, God is whispering to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. You really should say that? No, you shouldn't say that. You're going to do that? You shouldn't do that. He speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world that is so preoccupied with everything else right now. He uses pain. So, so let's not run from it. Let's not ignore it. Let's not, you know, amp it up to, what have I done that God is getting after me? Let's think about this biblically. And there's an invitation then. So James said, hey, you're suffering? Well, here's what I'm inviting you by the Spirit of God to do. This is your exhortation. Pray. Pray. It's, the original word is to make prayer. Pain can drive us to God. That's a good thing. Or pain can drive us from God, and then it's a bad thing. Trials, they prove to us that sin did, in fact, bring deadly consequences into this world, just as God promised Adam and Eve. He told them this would happen. Has God said, Satan the serpent, deceive them? Suffering reminds us this, this world is not our final home. Suffering reminds us this isn't as good as it gets. Now, for someone who knows Christ, this world is as close to hell as you'll ever see. This is as bad as it gets. For someone who dies without Christ, this world is as good as it ever gets. This is as close to heaven as this person will ever see. Without Christ, all eternity is hell, separated from God. Our deteriorating bodies preach to us that we're made for somewhere eternal. So we as Christians do not lose heart. And it can be disheartening, right? 
and you get out of bed and your back is not cooperating or whatever else, one of the many situses, right? And sinuses, since it rhymes. Our bodies are preaching to us, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are, how long? Eternal. So remember the sermon last Sunday. There was one individual in the entire two nations that was looking at the unseen, and it was David. Everybody else was focused on the sea. And Paul, a Benjaminite, a descendant of that tribe, he is writing saying, we're not preoccupied with the scene. We're not to be preoccupied with the nightly news. Now it's the 24-hour news feed that comes out of everywhere. We're not to be preoccupied with the virus. We're not to be preoccupied with the economy or with who's in the White House or who's in Lansing. Does it matter? Yes, it matters. But our preoccupation is not with the things that are seen, but with the things that are unseen. Now, what does that tell us? That behind Washington, D.C. and every other nation, there is an unseen demonic world. And there's an angelic world. And this war is being waged in the visible, and we can't see the invisible, but we see him, the Bible says. And he's high and lifted up. There's another throne that's higher than D.C., and there's no teleprompter needed in heaven. Amen? Okay, there's no preparation needed to prepare for any speeches or scripts or negotiations in heaven. God is sovereign on his throne and he reigns, but the world functions like Israel was functioning. There's our number one problem and it's across the valley. No, your number one problem is you are not seeing the God who reigns over every mountain and every valley. And when we forget that, that's when we stop praying because we start functioning like, I, I gotta work harder, I gotta try harder, I gotta do more, I need to do bad less, and I need to do more, and I need, uh, and if I'm back on the hamster wheel. And the Lord is just so patient. You know there's another way, right? You know you can get off that wheel, right? You know you're not getting anywhere on that wheel, right? Will you trust me? So when we're suffering, let us offer prayer. And number two, let us resolve to sing praise when we are rejoicing. Oh, there's good times. There's bad times. There's good times. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. What's the situation now that James is diving into? It's times of rejoicing. This is good times. Times when we're merry, when we're joyful, we're thankful for seasons of health and peacefulness and tranquility. We have so much to rejoice about as we've experienced God's faithfulness. Our church is coming up to 60 years. Next spring, 2022, God's faithfulness. That's all that speaks to, God's faithfulness. Working through common, humble people. The invitation for those who are in good times, sing, sing praise. Uh, the, the original word is to, to pluck the strings, Right? It's to take the guitar. It's to praise. It's making noise. It's to strike. We have every reason to sing. We have every reason to worship, worship with our voices lifted up, with our hands lifted up to respond that when our heart matches what we have sung and what we've heard, we respond with adoration, with praise, with I just want to, I want to keep that going. And so we praise don't really care about what people think around us. We are worshiping God. Em and Stephen got a little dog. This little dog, I was watching him yesterday. His name is Casper. He watches Stephen the way the word worship, it means to kiss the hand, to lick the hand. I've never had a dog do this. All right, Presley, 17 years old, this shih tzu, has never 
sought us for anything except when it's time to eat. His whole world, he's just a different bread dog, is what have you done for me lately? And so I've always struggled with this word, to kiss the hand. My dog never, unless he got food. And when you, he's satisfied, he's done with you. And I don't, he's always trying to leave. He's just running. He's just going somewhere. I don't know where he's going. Now, Stephen and Emma's dog is totally different. That dog, he walks around, and he's, oh, he's just watching. He's watching. And if Stephen moves, he goes and he follows it. He's under his chair. It's the idea of the worshiper. And it's not because you commanded the dog, you will watch me and you will worship me, and you will look to me with expectation. No, it's in the heart of the dog. That's my master. I will follow him. He's mine. I am his. I got the voice of up going, I know. I, I think in those terms. This is what it is when we worship. It's not because we have to. It's because we say, oh, everything comes from my, my master in heaven. He's good. Have you met my old master who pays hell? and death, and this new master kicked death in the teeth. And when he ran out of that grave, I ran out of that grave. I have a good master. Is there room in this family for you? Yeah. Yeah, he'll take you, but you must come. So it's not too hard to sing the hymn, How Great Thou Art, when everything's going good. Oh, Lord my God. When I in awesome wonder pop, tire blows, engine light comes on, sitting on the side of the road. Now stand on the side of 696. Then sings my... Hey, wave with all your fingers. What are you doing? My Savior God to thee, right? No, we find ourselves like, what are they doing? When everything falls apart, and we still are able to sing, but it's a, just a different melody. It's just a different, it's a different tone. Stephen Curtis Chapman, years ago, after his daughter was run over, that accident in the driveway. And all of those songs that he had written up to that point. And now it came time for him to sing those songs. He, he released another album, and I forget the name of that album at the moment, but that album is very different in its tone, but he's still able to sing. The sound is different. The melody's coming from a much deeper experiential place, and he's not saying it's all fine and dandy, but we're still able to worship. And that that album, that CD, man, I listen to that in di different seasons. I'll pull that CD out and listen to it. Paul learned this, Romans chapter 5, verse 3. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces, produces endurance, and endur endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through his Holy Spirit who, he's given, who has been given to us. There's a process in this pain. There's a process. There's a point in these trials. God is working something for our good and for his glory. And so then Paul practiced what he preached because let's see how that flies when you're in jail, Paul. Next to Silas, Acts 16, 22. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet into the, in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Then sings, come on, Silas, lift it up now. My soul, my Savior God to thee. And the prisoners were, what are they doing? You guys got any more of, are you drinking something over there? What is going on? Who sings at midnight in a nasty dungeon? Sewage floating by, rats going by, not a pretty place, and they're singing. 
this guy and the people with him. And not long after, the jailer and his family and other prisoners. So let us offer prayer when we're suffering. Let us sing praise when we're rejoicing. And our third resolution is this from James. Receive prayer when we are sick. Now this is prayers, it's a different. The other two were individual. This is a different type of prayer. This is prayers from the church leadership. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So what's the situation here? What's going on? This is a season of sickness. Well, we want to ask them, why is the person sick? I don't know. They may not even know. God knows, but it's not like elders of the church, like, oh, let's see. You've got some secret sin going on, and hang on one second. Let me get my, you know, app for that, and we'll figure out what's going on. No, we don't know but God knows, and there's a good chance that the person who may be under the chastening of the Lord, they may have an idea of where God may be trying to get their attention. This person, same word, can be someone who is weak. That's in Acts 20, 35, a weak person. A person who is sick, that's uh, the word used, same word, John 5, 7, the paralyzed man by the pool. I don't have anybody to put me in the water. Poor me. A person, same word, who is ill. The call came for help to Jesus because Lazarus was your friend. He's ill. That's the word here, John 11, 1. Paul, he left Trophimus at Miletus, who was ill, at 2 Timothy 4 and verse 20. And Paul writes and says, Epaphroditus was ill near to death. Now, now listen, because sometimes... People take this verse and they say, you got to go, and faith healers, they're called. They use these verses like, you got to come to me and you got to pay the fee and you got to do the thing or get the rag or get the water or get the oil. And, and this thing will do because I've got my touch on it. And if it doesn't work, here's the fine print. You ready for it? You didn't have enough faith. Write a bigger check, show more faith. And if you still don't have the problem solved, newsflash, you still didn't have enough faith. And the backs of usually those who are vulnerable are broken by swindlers like this. Paul, the apostle, he's writing saying Epaphroditus was ill, he was near to death, and he doesn't follow it up with, and I healed him. He didn't. Paul said, uh, Trophimus, we left him in Miletus. Wait a second. So these guys on TV claim to be faith healers, but Paul left somebody sick in a town? As the New Testament ca carries on, the works of miracles, they, they fade away. They fade off. And the word, the scripture, the letters, what's written to the churches is becoming more collected so that our faith and trust is not in, I saw this happen or I experienced this, but our faith and trust is in something more secure. It's in the living and lasting word of God. And it's just as powerful in the hands of a child as it is in the hands of the lips of Billy Graham because it's the word of God. It's not in the act. It's not in the miracle. So I bring up those words to say, so wait a second. If, if someone prays over me and I don't immediately get healed, did something go wrong? Well, you have to ask that of uh, what's going on with Trophimus and what's going on with Epaphroditus. And obviously what happened when Paul's head was chopped off and what happened when Jesus was crucified. There is not a guarantee that if I pray for 20 minutes, then I will receive 20 healings. There's no formula here. It's 
seeking the Father's heart. And when we're in times of sickness, here's an opportunity, here's an instruction given, call the elders of the church and let them come. Let them in. What is going on in your life? And let them go with you to the throne of grace. So important. There's an invitation here, call for prayer. Notice it's not the elders going down the list saying, you need us to come pray for you, right? And, and you need, no, this is, the ball is in the court of the person who is suffering. It's in their hands. And if they understand something is amiss, something's not right, let me call for the elders of the church. And let's pray together. Church leaders, the under shepherds who love and care for the flock, but they don't know everything going on. We know what we're told, but we don't know what's going on behind the eyes and in the heart. God knows that. The elders of the church are instructed, here's what you do. Pray over him. Pray over her. Take this person to the throne of grace as they seek to find help and to find healing from God. The elders are instructed, here's what you do. You gather and you anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. We've done this. Not often, but we've done this. And you just, it's... We just take oil. We just put it on a person's forehead. It's just symbolic. Someone, like in a few moments, we're going to observe communion. And we're, this is a symbol. And we're reminded of in, in, in the scriptures that the Holy Spirit is often pictured in and, and represented in oil, the ministry that we need. And so there's oil, there's something physical placed on the forehead that you just, you just pray over this person. You go with them in prayer. God's spirit is invited to reveal that which may be unknown. Even in that individual's life, they may be saying, is there something in my life, my past, that I have just forgotten about, blocked over, and this sickness, this bitterness, something's wrong, and I need to deal with it. Maybe forgive someone or be forgiven or whatever it may be. And the word here is that, that James writes, he says, if there's sin. If, it doesn't mean that when you're sick, there is sin. No, there may be something there that the person says, I'm glad you're here, and there's an area of my life that I've been struggling with. But I said, maybe, if there is sin, if there is sin to be confessed, then there's the opportunity to deal with that. Proverbs 28 and verse 13 we came through this in our reading through the Bible in a year this last week. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Do you hear that? You have sin in your life and you're just covering it up. You're burying it like a dog tries to bury things when he's done. It doesn't remove it. It doesn't get rid of it. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them, there's the key, will obtain mercy. That's repentance. Confession, that's saying the same thing about it that God says, I'm wrong, this is wrong, this is offensive, and forsakes. That's a turn. That's I used to and not anymore. This is a turning from. It's not just, hey, the slate is clean till next week. We'll do this again. In 1 John 1, 9, John writes, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what then will happen? The prayer of faith will save the sick. This is prayer that believes God and goes to him for the answer that he will provide. He is able, we believe this, to immediately heal anybody. Immediately deliver someone from illness, from sickness. God has that power. And he may choose to do that and he may not. I'm not God. But for those who are in Christ, we pray knowing that he will ultimately deliver us from every sin, from the very presence of sin. And so we trust him and we go to him and we pray and we trust him and the Lord will raise him up in resurrection power. Notice it's not the faith healers raised him up. Notice it's not the elders who raised him up. It's not the oil that raises him up. 
okay? So this isn't, you know, chanting and, and, and doing some formula, and, and they, they did it. It worked. And if you go to them, and over there on this corner, this house, this, this is the place, and, and, and they heal. It's the Lord who raises anybody up. You come through any sickness and don't die, it's the Lord. And, and here's what we have to come to terms with. He doesn't owe me one more breath. That's when I get it all wrong is when I think I'm, I'm owed. The Lord owes me. I deserve to have this happen in my life. Beloved, I deserve hell. I deserve hell. The wages of sin is death. And the Lord knows, and most of you know, I'm, I'm a sinner. I, I've sinned. I've blown it. And he hasn't given me what I've deserved. He didn't just wipe me out as a child with my propensity to lie. That's it. Pfft, done. And I deserve that. But instead, he gave himself. And he showed me mercy. And he died in my place. And he was buried and rose again so that I could be forgiven for every lie, for everything I've done wrong, dishonoring parents, unfaithful, untruthful, every sin in my life he took on him at the cross and it's paid in full. Oh, this is so powerful. And it says, if he has committed sins, if he's confessed his sins, if he's repented of his sins, then he or she will be forgiven. The, clay, the sleet, slate is clean. Perhaps God allowed the sickness, now listen, to get that believer's attention. Perhaps God even allowed the sickness to get the attention of people around who were functioning like, this life will go on. I've got, I've got years to live. I'm fine. I'll think about that later. We have today. We have this moment, and we're not guaranteed time beyond that. So the writer of Hebrews writes, and he says this, and have you forgotten, Hebrews 12, 5, the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? It's training. It's shaping. It's changing. It's molding, remaking. This is what God is doing in do we think that all happens in the, you know, in the meadows? No, it happens in fire. It happens in the, in the kiln. It's where we're refined. So let's offer prayer when we're suffering. Let's sing praise when we're rejoicing. Let's receive prayer when we are sick. And I will say this, as elders, we... You know, Russ and myself, we've done this with other men in the church in the past. If you need prayer, you contact us. You let us know. And I, I will promise you, we're not coming in saying, oh, we, we, we've been waiting on your call. And that, that's not it. Do you understand we're servants of God? God knows everything. We don't. How can we help? How can we serve? What's going on in marriages? What's going on at home? If, if it's not invited in to say, let's deal with this, we're not coming in, beating the door down. This is an offer. This is an invitation saying, let's, let's get real before the Lord. Now look at this last resolution. Let's abide in prayer as we grow together. This is corporate prayer. This is prayer in the family of God. As we worship together, we walk together, we work together, we serve in the church. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. What's the situation here? Huh. This is all the time. 
This is every season of life. We are called, we are invited, we're even commanded to walk together in Christian community. Can I just ask the question, why wouldn't a Christian walk together in community? Why would a Christian say, eh, I don't really want fellowship? You have a family. God has made a family for you. Why would you want to live isolated and alone and miss out on the blessings of God walking together in community? This is what happens in small group community. This is what happens among Christian friendships that are forged in the fire, is that I love you and you love me and we're gonna be honest and transparent with one another and we're gonna pray for one another and we are going to forge out time in our schedules to do this because people will do what they want to do. You know that, right? You wanna get away, you'll get away. You wanna do sports, you'll do sports. You want to do whatever you will do and I will do what we prioritize and want to do, what we love to do. The people of God, they love to live in fellowship with the people of God because we realize we need it. And we confess our trespasses to one another. This is where we're just honest with each other. We get honest before God. We get honest with one another. We prioritize meeting together. We pray for one another. I love this part about our small groups. And we separate men and women and we just pray for one another. We encourage one another. Some years ago, we went through the study, How People Change. And that one statement is just stuck with me. I need you to help me see me accurately. Let me say it again. Let me flip it around. You need me to help you see you accurately. And you can say that of every per person in the body of Christ. Why? Because I lie to myself. And then I get upset with Ginger when she corrects me. I'm like, oh, I wasn't making a face. I wasn't doing that. I was fine. No, you weren't. Not acceptable. Fail. No. Okay? If we're the only one listening to, I'm fine. That's great. It was okay for me to say it that way, this word, no. We help one another to see ourselves from the outside Maybe I wouldn't want myself videoed all the time and put up, here's why he's in traffic. Here's why he's when he wakes up. Here's why he's when he responds to the DTE bill that came in, you know, whatever. Ah, the Lord sees us. The Lord knows. So we're called out of isolation. We're called away from loneliness into the family of God. So can I ask you right now, are you living your Christian life in isolation or are you living in community? Can we help you? Take, if you're in isolation, move into community. We want to do that. There's an invitation here. There's an exhortation. Prayers of a righteous person work powerfully. Well, then who actually is a righteous person? Who's a righteous person? Well, it's a person who's been made right, been made righteous, who are living uprightly before the Lord and with others loving God and loving people. This is a person who's been changed and it's not by their own doing. This is by God's doing, by his grace. And what happens when this person prays? When a righteous person prays, what happens? There is great power working. Can you think of people in your lifetime that you heard them pray and you almost had, you just opened your eye like, is the Lord here? Is he like right here? because they're talking with God like they're face to face with God. And if you have a request, somebody's face comes up in your mind, I want them praying for me. I want them praying about this. Can I invite us to be a church that is just all of our faces come up? Can I invite you to come a little early and join me in prayer in the hallway at 940 and say, God, would you meet with us today? Will you give whoever it is that's speaking today clarity? Will you cleanse them? And will you use your word to them to do what only you can do, and that's reach a heart? Because if God doesn't take this word, it drops right here and it just falls flat. That's how change happens. He does this. Circumstances may change because of these fervent prayers. Can I ask us the question, what are we praying for right now that 
absolutely has to have God to intervene or it's not going to happen. Can I tell you one thing? The property right now, what's going on? A couple of weeks ago, we went before Lenox Township. We asked for variances. Two variances is all we, we asked for on, on this occasion. That um, we wouldn't have to pave the parking lot. They said, that's fine. That we wouldn't have to put a sidewalk, like an L, around the entire, you know, thousands of dollars of sidewalk going from a neighbor to a neighbor that don't have a sidewalk. And they said, yeah, that's fine. And if there ever is a sidewalk needed in the future and we develop that, then put it in. We said, that's, that's reasonable, yes. God did that. God's doing amazing things in how he's providing. Praise the Lord for this. People will change. Often it's the person praying who's changed. No, have you found that to be true? Lord, this situation, and change this situation. And, and then we find after prayer, actually, God, you're changing me. And now it's the same situation, but I'm looking at the situation differently. Huh, how'd that happen? Exactly, exactly. Do you feel deficient and weak in your prayers right now? Do you wish you were more like that person? Oh, if I could pray like them. Oh, I get in small group and I get nervous because I don't pray like them. Scrap all that. Pray. He's your father in heaven, and he's not more their father than your father because they've been praying longer. If you know Christ, he's your father, and he's not going to say, hey, back up. Somebody else prays nicer prayers. He cares about your prayers. And James encourages people just like us to learn something about the great men of God in the past. And did you catch his illustration? He says, let's talk about Elijah. It's almost like some of you, you know, you've closed your Bibles already, like, all right. And he says, there's, there's what I've given you, but I want you to remember someone in the Old Testament. I want you to remember Elijah. And remember Elijah, that he was a man with a nature like ours. What? Did anybody find yourself like, yeah, me and Elijah, man, we would be, oh, we would be praying together. Elijah would be, hey, come on over, wise. Prayer time, about to happen. No, I, I wouldn't say that. But James says, hey, remember Elijah? And he had a nature like ours. He was just a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And guess what? The heavens went like brass. Back to the Old Testament, 1 Kings. 1 Kings, and we don't, we're not gonna take time to get this whole account. But in chapter 17, is where we're introduced to Elijah and this prayer. And in Israel, there's a king named Ahab, and he's a wicked, wicked man. Married a wicked woman, Jezebel. 1 Kings 17, now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. That's a bold statement. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went, Elijah went and he did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So he's hanging out for a while, and Uber Eats shows up, and he don't have an app. They just, ah, here you go, bagels, turkey, whatever. They just bring it. And then the Lord says, you know what? Go on up to the widow of Zarephath. Get out of this country. And he goes up, and remember, he comes to the widow, and she's collecting the little bit of food. And he says, excuse me, can I have that to eat? And she's looking at it like, the, uh, I was just going to have this one last meal, and then me and my son were going to die. Yeah, I'll take that. Do you trust me? And she did. And she fixed the meal and served it. And she, he said to her, you know what? That meal and that oil is never going to run out until it rains then her son, tra tragedy happens. 
Her son is raised back to life. This man prayed over this son. And then chapter 18 unfolds. And after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah goes back to Ahab. Then it gets to the huge encounter with the prophets of Baal. And they go out on Mount Carmel. And there's the back and forth. And at the end of chapter 18... Verse 40, 41, and Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees, and he said to his servant, go up now and look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and, and said, there's nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. And on the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he, I love this, gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. He prays, go check, seven times. There's nothing, I told you there's nothing, I told you there's nothing. Hey, I looked, and off in the distance, I looked, and it's ah, but there's a cloud about the size of my hand. And Elijah says, go tell Ahab to fire up all the horses in his chariot, because he's not going to make it when the flash flood comes. And Elijah gathers up his garment and runs like the wind, and beats Ahab in the chariot to the entrance of the city and is waiting on him. Now, right there, we're all thinking, whoa, if I could pray like that. So remember, down, head between the knees. That's how you get prayers like this answered. No, it's not about that. The next chapter, Jezebel to Ahab. What's going on? Why are you so sad? Elijah. Oh, I'll take care of him. And Elijah, the man of God, with a nature like ours, is running for his life, scared, praying, Lord, just kill me now. Don't pray that one. <laughs> and James says, you remember Elijah in 17 and 18? Man of God, great prayers. And the Bible also gives us 19. He's a man with a nature like ours. And he is a, here's the key, don't miss this with a God who is our God. And if you know Christ, he's your God. And the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man, you're gonna see family members' lives changed. We're gonna see a city and a region changed when right now, if we're honest, it doesn't feel like we can do much to change things. It's a little overwhelming with the political fervor that's going on right now and the banter and all sides. And it seems a little bit beyond human. Why? Because it is. And if we are going to shine the light and make a difference in this dark night, it's going to be because we don't miss fervent prayer. It is not, you know, relegated to some side room, sideway, you know, just a few minutes. This must be, this is the bloodline of the church that we pray. So let me ask us some questions. What hinders you from praying fervently? Oh, we all have something that keeps us. Oh, I'm so busy, pastor. I'm so busy. Yeah, we all are. And let me ask you this and let us ask us, ask ourselves this question, what are you asking God to do in you? What are you asking God to do through you? And what are you asking God to do around you? You see those three areas. God, what am I needing for you to do in me? Give me faith. We sing that song. To trust what you say. What are, through me, Lord, do, do something through me. What? What are you asking God to do through you? And what are you asking God to do around you? Please, let's not depart from those questions. 
And lastly, what's your next step? To seeking God fervently in prayer. If we're gonna seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, it's how do we do this? It's through prayer. It's through prayer that we seek him. Let's stand together. As the worship team comes, I praise God for you worship team members preparing our hearts for worship, leading us to the throne of grace. We're gonna pray together and then we're gonna sing and then we're gonna observe communion together this morning. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the privilege that we have to pray. I thank you, Lord, for the illustrations that we have in scripture that teach us to pray that instruct us, that we have examples, Lord, from the Old Testament that we can look back and realize we're not alone in this battle, but that we have a God who lives and reigns and you are powerful. And we love you and we serve you. So help us, Lord, to come individually and corporately to the throne of grace that there we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. In Jesus' great name we pray, amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.